Join leading executives from ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Marks & Spencer, Heineken, and many more for a dedicated day of networking and panels at the Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit at Advertising Week Europe on Thursday the 16th of May at 180 Studios in London. Panel discussions will explore how to work with UK broadcasters in brand-funded entertainment, navigating the world of compliance, IP and distribution, creator partnerships, the future of digital branded content, brand-funded podcasts, and more. Delegate tickets are available now via telecast.com forward slash events at a very special discounted rate of £350 plus VAT which also grants delegates access to more than 100 sessions at the event over all three days from the 14th to the 16th of May. Join company presidents and CEOs, founders, futurists, influencers, agencies and execs from brands including Coca-Cola, TikTok, Google, Activision Blizzard, LinkedIn, Netflix and Deliveroo. Plus, celebrities including Drive Tribe's Richard Hammond and pop legends take that. Telecast Brand-Funded Entertainment Summit in association with 53 Degrees North Media at Advertising Week Europe on the 16th of May 2024. Get your tickets now at telecast.com forward slash events and level up your knowledge and contacts in the world of brand-funded entertainment. Telecast, the TV industry news review. How did Deal or No Deal get commissioned? What drama content is UK TV in the market for right now? And what are the latest key executive moves in the TV industry? Find out on this week's Telecast. On this week's show, former director of Sky One, director of Daytime at ITV, and head of scheduling at the BBC, Adam MacDonald and I, discuss the new boom in entertainment and quiz shows. Plus, UK TV's drama commissioner, Philippa Colley-Cousins, is in Commissioner's Corner, and TBI editor Richard Middleton brings us up to date with all the latest global TV industry executive move news in Movers and Shakers. It's all coming up on this week's telecast. Now, my first guest on this week's show has been director of Sky One, VP of programming at A&E UK, creative director at IWC Media, director of daytime and digital factual at ITV, Head of Daytime at Channel 4, Director of Program Development at Line TV, Head of Scheduling and Head of TV Audience Research at the BBC. Plus, he's commissioned shows including Deal or No Deal, Come Down With Me, Coach Trip and The Chase. Welcome to the show, Adam McDonald. Hi. It's a remarkable you know, spectrum of roles that you've had within the TV industry. So I've got lots of Lots of questions that I'm going to ask you. Well, my first one is is really about what you're up to now. Yeah, so I'm now the chairman of uh, Possessed Media, which is a, um, a production company run by a guy called Glenn Hugill, who uh, is uh, a, a bit of a well, kind of I, I think he's a bit of a genius in the uh, in the in the quiz and the game show genre, uh, with an amazing track record. Uh, and he possibly most famously was the showrunner for Deal or No Deal for. A, a long time. That's where I first met Glenn, and may or may not have been the banker. Right. I'm the um, the chairman of the company, and we are uh, we're a company that's that, that's kind of been in existence for about I think five years, uh, with a kind of core portfolio in the area of non scripted entertainment, so quiz shows and game shows, uh, but latterly kind of extending into uh, other areas of, of factual and uh, and reality. 
and we are like everybody else sitting in our bedrooms, uh, not having met with each other for a year, coming up with television ideas. To your point about the the role that you've had uh, possessed in terms of perhaps broadening the areas in which the production company works within into uh, perhaps more broader entertainment genres. We were talking before the show about you identifying what you saw as a resurgence in the entertainment genre. What's your thinking on that? There does appear to be a a kind of renaissance going on in in this genre, which um, which you know we're feeling quite powerfully uh, uh, possessed. I mean, we've had probably our most successful year uh, whilst whilst being in in, in lockdown. Uh, I think we've had about ten pilots and turned five of them into, into series, and and that either speaks to us being very very good at what we do, or it speaks to uh, there being a greater appetite from broadcasters for the type of programming we uh, you know we, we specialize in. Hopefully, a bit of both. But I, I have picked up really that there does seem to be something interesting going on in in the entertainment genre. I think it's a genre. I think most people who have kind of worked in it, and even myself when I was commissioning uh, entertainment shows, it feels like as a genre, it's been a little bit samey for the last, or crikey, for the last 10, 15 years, possibly longer. A lot of the shows have been very similar to each other. The, the taste and the flavors have, have not been that diverse. And it's been a kind of cautious. So we've seen kind of other genres, uh, particularly scripted drama and, and comedy, really kind of, you know, kind of take flight over the last few years. But entertainment, for, for various reasons, has, has kind of not done that. Why do you think that it's uh, that it's perhaps become or had become a little bit stale? So my theory is is that principally it's been the terrestrials, the big terrestrials, ITV, BBC, Channel Four, that have been you know, historically kind of um, commissioning in this area. Uh, and I think as a result of the, frankly, the ratings um, pressures they've all had over the last kind of couple of decades um, with new players coming in, you know, initially the cable and satellite channels and, and luckily the streamers, Netflix and Amazon, there's been this intense pressure downwards on the ratings they've been getting. Uh, and I think that if you are a company where the, the majority of your revenue is coming from advertising, like ITV or Channel 4 or or even kind of BBC, where there is a pressure to kind of make shows for everybody. That downward pressure on ratings is is petrifying, really. I think it's an existential challenge for these um, organisations. And, and latterly, particularly with the streamers, Netflix and Amazon, uh, the shows that they've been making kind of big impacts with have been the, the, the dramas, the big expensive dramas. And that's forced the uh, the networks to kind of spend more money on these big, scripted shows precisely at the time where they're getting less money coming in. And so I think in that ecology, the role of the entertainment genre has played a very specific brief, I think. And that is to try, it's been used to to provide kind of ballast, ratings ballast, I suppose, in the schedule, if you're being very kind of crude about it. I think there is, Mm. you know, no commission is risk-free, but I think there is a a feeling that you can, as a commissioner and as a broadcaster, guarantee uh, the success of of, of some uh, commissions in the in, in the entertainment genre more than you can elsewhere. I think that you know shows like you know the singing competitions, the skill craft competitions. Glenn, who runs a company, calls it the Russian doll commissioning phenomenon, whereby you know you start off with an amazing show in a genre like X Factor. And you just commission one very similar to that, not quite the same. Do it in the knowledge that it won't be quite as big 
and the ratings won't be quite as good, but there's a certain guarantee that they'll be okay, a little bit smaller, but okay. And that's incredibly important when you're you're running a channel. So it's not as if it's a cynical thing or it's not as if it's a lazy thing. It's a very clever strategic thing to kind of just survive, really. And I think over the years, that's led to this genre having a certain value and a certain role in the in the ecology of these channels that has led to it becoming a little bit predictable and a little bit samey. Well, I suppose it's also to do with executives as well. Not only is it strategically makes sense to, you know, to commission another series and you know hopefully it'll it'll uh, match the ratings or maybe you know be around the ratings of the last season it's like okay that's that's all right that's a bit of a banker for us for, for for the next few months but but also when it comes to commissioners any new commission within this area is a big risk isn't it i mean obviously networks are, are risk averse but individuals are even more so because if you get it wrong you lose your job yeah, but potentially. I mean, I'm not. I'm not really in that in that camp that kind of accuses commissioners of being risk averse or or too cautious. I, I think you know because I've been a commissioner in, in you know throughout this this period that I'm talking about, and I think everybody wants to commission the next brand new breakthrough show. But to be able to do that, you have to kind of shore up the organisation that you're working with, and you have to, you know, <laughs> if it was a football team, you have to kind of do the hard yards in midfield and defence, you know, and so you have to. Uh, and that's that's been the role of this genre, but and uh, but I do think it's changing, and and I think, you know, I think that you know the commissioners that have been around are the commissioners that are beginning beginning to commission more interesting shows in this genre, and I think there's, you know, there's fascinating reasons why 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 that's happening. You know, I think the pandemic has got um has actually you know has got a lot to do with it. It was beginning to change prior to the pandemic with a few commissions that you're going thinking. Well, crikey, that's interesting. That's different. I think possibly because if you follow the the Russian doll analogy, that the dolls had got by that stage quite small, <laughs> um, so there was a desire to to try something else. Um, but but I do think that the um, the COVID and the pandemic has really um, turbocharged that that need for this genre. And what what I think has been happening is that three or four things I think as a, as a result of the pandemic. First thing in is that the ratings have gone up. We're all at home watching telly, so ratings have gone up. So therefore, the need for entertainment to perform a certain kind of role in that in that ecology just has gone away. Secondly, that the schedules have become emptier. You know, shows just stop being made, and it takes a lot of time for for scripted shows to kind of come back online again. Uh, and and so channels all of a sudden had empty spaces and needed a genre where they could commission uh, and turn around very quickly in high volume. Uh, and that's kind of been been great for the entertainment genre, and also there's just been a demand now from from viewers for something new. I mean, if you've got a lot of airtime to commission into, by definition, you have to commission a range of it, otherwise it becomes really salient. But secondly, we've all been sitting at home, being very bored and, and needing something new and fresh, and I think commissioners have kind of turned to turned to the entertainment genre to to provide that. And also it provides, I think, in this world where we've just sat at home, not mixing with anybody, you know, the role of the quiz show and the game show kind of provides that interactivity that we're all missing. You know, with a quiz show, there is, you know, you can play along, you can answer the questions, you can get things right, you can get things wrong. I mean, with shows like The Masked Singer um, and This Is My House, luckily, you know, the, the new genre of the guessing game has come along so people can play along at home, um, you know, guessing along with the format. 
the need rather for interactivity from these shows has kind of led to a bit of a renaissance. Uh, and also, finally, I think we're seeing some not only kind of innovation in what's being commissioned, but also um, innovation in, in, in how they're scheduling it. Again, possibly for a whole variety of those reasons I've just gone into. Um, but now we're seeing big quiz shows being commissioned uh, and played at nine o'clock, where, you know, up until the pandemic, you wouldn't get a commissioner commissioning quiz show for peak time midweek. But now you're seeing, you know, not only shows playing at nine o'clock midweek, but you're seeing them stripped. You know, so Gordon Ramsay's uh, bank balance played across three consecutive nights over over three weeks. You've got the wheel, uh, the wall, all, all kind of appearing in peak time weekends, and you haven't seen that for a long time. Uh, so yeah, it's um, I, I think it's an exciting time, and I think also possibly another reason is that the program makers and developers in this genre may have, you know, had to have upped their game because there is a there is a you know an increased need for this genre, and so and so we've got better at it. Um, possibly, I mean, certainly, uh, you know, possessed. We've been spending more time, I think, a more intense period over the last year, uh, developing shows um, because of the need, and because you know we've got less time to do anything else. Frankly, we're kind of benefiting from this. We've got new shows with, you know, with a, a, a lot of channels now. Uh, I think we have had ten pilots and five series we've had commissioned. Uh, and so we've kind of upped the game, just as the the need for this kind of genre has increased, and it's. A, you just hope that kind of, you know, when when we all get out and about again and our lives get back to normal, you know, this innovation in this genre has kind of established itself as, as something that works with the audience and can continue. Actually, earlier on in the life of Telecast a few months ago, when Gertz Lesis, analyst from K7 Media uh, at the time, was discussing quiz shows and really seeing an upturn in demand and and, and also play out of uh, quiz shows across across the world in the early stages of the pandemic so it's uh, and it's it's really the first time that we've we've returned to that uh, subject on the show so it's you know really uh, you know it makes complete sense all the points that you make you know there is this theory that you know in an uncertain world quiz shows give you not only interactivity but a degree of control and a degree of certainty you know when we literally don't know what's happening from day to day if you can kind of answer a question on a quiz show and get it right or get it wrong uh, and there's a kind of a security and an achievement in that i think it kind of you know satisfies an emotional lead both on that interactive level and that desire for for, for a bit of stability and certainty in an uncertain world I suppose as long as you can get the studio space, which is something that I've been banging on a bit about over the last few weeks, I uh, produce the show from L Street Studios. And I do know from speaking to lots of our clients and lots of other people across the industry on an ongoing basis, there's a huge demand on studio space now. And, and that's obviously crucial for producing these sort of entertainment shows. As you say, volume is one of the you know the key parts of this. And and deal or no deal, that was one of the secrets of its success, wasn't it, really? The, the being able to produce the sheer amount in, in very relatively short uh, periods of time was really key. I mean, do you see that being an impediment to, to your production on uh, at the moment? Are you are you able to get plenty of studio space? Just about. I mean, there is, um, you know, we have had challenges and, um, you know, we're, we're, we've kind of explored lots of you know, non-studio spaces at times when we've had to, and it's just about okay. And, and we've kind of, you know, got in early, luckily. But, you know, frankly, it's a problem you prefer to have, you know, kind of um, a lack of a lack of studio space as opposed to lack of commissions. Yes. <laughs> it's much bad. But deal on donor, we, we made that out of a warehouse in, um, 
in, in Bristol for we, we were making three or four shows a day, I think, over over ten years. So you, you find a way, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, it was a fascinating old interview that I was listening to with uh, with Noel Edmonds, and he was talking about the uh, you know the success and literally the the sheer volume and the hard work that goes into uh, a lot of these shows and and being able to to, to produce them at that sort of volume. Yeah, a huge volume, and also kind of a you know an afternoon quiz show where there are no questions and answers, so it was utterly unscripted. So you'd go in knowing you'd have to make three or four shows just about people opening boxes no script other than the star which is the format there were absolutely two stars for that show and that was noel you know front of house and then glenn kind of um behind house kind of just just running it it was a it was an amazing double act and i was privileged enough to go and sit with glenn as he was or was not being the banker and the producer and just seeing kind of that that dance that he and noel had with each other for year after year, it was a it was a it was a, a brilliant show. That's for sure. Can you tell us about the commissioning process of that show? What was the first pitch that you had, and what what sold it to you? Because as you say, on paper, it doesn't sound very good. No, no. I mean, you know, at that time, I think most of my su- successful commissions had been turned down, not only by every other channel, but you know, in the case of Deal or No Deal, turned down by me initially as well. <laughs> so, you know, when we talk about, you know, great ideas and, and commissioning strategies, you know, there's a, there is a degree of serendipity there. Um, and the first, so the first time, I, you know, so Deal or No Deal famously had been pitched around to all the channels and all the channels had, had said no. And I became a commissioner and it was pitched to me um, just off paper. I, I said no very, very early on because it just seemed an insane idea. And at the time, you know, it had been successful in in some territories, in Northern European and Eastern European territories. But but this was a time where actually, you know, Britain was commissioning all the new formats. And we had this kind of slightly snobby view to to program development and this sense of kind of creative exceptionalism in the UK that actually only we can come up with these great ideas and and we're not buying in from overseas. And, And you can see how that's changed over, you know, over the years. But no, it was a... It was, you know, such a difficult show to kind of see on paper. And and so I eventually commissioned it after seeing, well, after kind of meeting up with Glenn, who kind of just opened my eyes to kind of its potential, but also by seeing the French version, actually. And I developed a strategy at the time at, at Channel 4 for certain types of shows that I wanted. And I wanted shows with lots of different people from different age groups all coming together on adventures. And I was doing that in, in uh, uh, factual shows with kind of, Dine with me and, and coach trip as well. And then I saw this show where a very similar uh, thing was occurring, but actually inside um inside a studio. And I was watching the French show and, and it was subtitled, but I still had no idea what was going on. Literally couldn't stand it at all. And then halfway through, people started holding hands and crying as this other person was was opening this box and then cheering and hugging. And I was thinking, I don't know what's going on there, but I want some of that because it just seemed magical. Do you think it could have worked with anybody other than Noel Edmonds as a uh, as a presenter? Uh, well, yes, because it works, you know, in fifty territories around the world. So, you know, there was something inherently brilliant with the uh, uh, with the format. I mean, I do think ours was uh, the best. I would say that, wouldn't I? But I do think kind of we we made a step change in kind of how it gets presented and also you know how it gets produced and uh, and the and the, um, the the metrics that went into kind of how we offered the offers we made behind the scenes, which um, 
you know, which came from um, uh, the production team uh, and Glenn. I won't, not going into detail, I'm not naming names, but we screen tested a lot of people for that role. And, and the moment we got Noel and we started seeing him do his pilot, it just became apparent that kind of he was just perfect for the role. But we were, you know, interesting to kind of think we spent a lot of time sitting down thinking what kind of presenter can we get for this show? Because it's a show where literally nothing happens, where there's no script, there's no auto cue, where you needed somebody who could talk uh, for hours and on end about the same thing. Uh, and we concluded that we needed either a DJ or a comedian uh, because they had the, you know, the, the craft to do, do that. Oh, uh, and the other thing is we, we thought, oh, it's a business show. There's deals. So perhaps you, you should have a businessman. Uh, and so we looked at all the kind of, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the business leaders like Alan Sugar, who were running shows. And, and then we made a list of both of those people, DJs, comics and business people. And, and actually in the Venn diagram of that, there was only one name that came in the middle, which was, which was Noel. Uh, and so, yeah, we, we, we kind of then tried to get him and luckily we were able to. Fascinating stuff. So just just coming back onto one of your uh, earlier points then about, you know, entertainment and the resurgence of entertainment. We were talking about linear channels, domestic linear channels struggling in the face of now these huge US streaming businesses and uh, not only SVODs, but AVODs are starting to make themselves known. What do you think that domestic channels should be doing now to protect themselves and, and really fight back against these ever-declining audiences? What would you be doing if you were a channel controller right now? There's a couple of things, a couple of kind of tension points, really, and kind of divergent strategies. I mean, we've seen through COVID and the pandemic the real you know, resurgence in audiences and ratings to terrestrial television and the real role they can pay in this kind of interactive relationship with an audience where you can watch a show and yeah. kind of take part in it and have a sense that other people are watching it together. And you can see with, you know, in other genres, in, in drama with Line of Duty, I think last night it got the biggest audience it's, it's ever got. And that's a weekly show, you know, which flies in the face of, of what's been happening on the on-demand services. So there's still that sense of the big show that provides group bonding and, and interactivity uh, on a kind of weekly cycle um, where you can look forward to it. Um, but also you can't do that all of the time. And a lot of the channels are, uh, and broadcasters are now, you know, they're be- now beginning to talk about an on-demand first commissioning strategy where, you know, they're, they're doing away with channel controllers uh, and really doing away with the, the needs of the schedule first and saying you need to commission specifically for your streaming service, you know, ITV and the BBC. We're still kind of both broadcasters and producers trying to work out quite what that means. And, you know, we're at the foothills of understanding what on-demand first means for the terrestrial channels. Uh, I mean, what it doesn't mean is it's going to play out on-demand first because they've said that actually a lot of these shows that are commissioned under the on-demand first strategy will transmit first on terrestrial. So that in itself is like, okay, let me get my head around that. It's more of a kind of a, uh, a kind of ideological thing, I guess, you know, which is actually, you know, we need to think about how it's going to work in the on-demand world first, even though we may also transmit it on the, on the terrestrial channels. And that's, that's a kind of a, a paradigm shift in many respects. And we're all trying to work out quite what that means. 
for me, I'm looking at this as a, okay, well, a show has been commissioned for a particular slot in the linear schedule for a number of years. So it's like, okay, whatever, whether it's uh, uh, immediately pre-watershed or, or whatever that might be. Now that's all out the window. Should a producer be thinking about changing the format idea of the show to coincide with this digital first commissioning strategy? Should it be the actual how long a show is? You know, as simple as that. You know, obviously you don't have issues necessarily with a 45-minute show or a 35-minute show or 55, whatever that might be. You know, should producers be thinking about the length of show that they're pitching uh, as well as the actual content for a digital first strategy? Exactly. And, uh, you know, we need to be thinking about all of, all of that and more uh, and kind of working with broadcasters to kind of understand because they're learning as well. They're kind of learning quite what that means and, and seeing how these shows play out. When I first became a scheduler, God, 25 years ago now, you know, back then shows were commissioned on an annual cycle and they were commissioned by genre, really. They were commissioned because of what the program makers and the channel controller fancied or, or liked or responded to creatively. And so you'd end up with a whole load of shows of various different durations because they commissioned them for the duration that was right for the show of kind of illogical mix of genres because you just responded by what you liked uh, kind of instinctively or creatively. Uh, and then as a scheduler, you were given this diverse range of shows and you had to make a schedule out of them. And it was impossible. You had shows of different durations and different lengths and the wrong genre mix and too many pre-watershed and too many post-watershed. You know, the role of scheduling then was was to kind of essentially create a an ideal schedule and, and and off the back of that, everything that then dictated what was commissioned. And so that that then dictated the length of shows you were commissioning and the types of shows and the range of shows and the mix of shows. And that's become the prevailing model really over the last kind of 20 years. And many people would say that that kind of kind of bludgeoned the creativity out of the process. Uh, and as a scheduler, you know, I kind of don't necessarily see that as the case. It kind of just made things easy for audiences to find shows and relate to shows. And, and you know, frankly, in this industry, it's impossible to bludgeon creativity out of this industry. It will just find its way, uh, whatever. But we are now, you know, when we're looking at on the first demand first, kind of potentially moving back into that world where, you know, the, the duration of the show is the duration the idea requires it to be, which is brilliant. But it still comes with a whole bunch of other Issues. I mean, again, if you're comparing with the schedule, an old-fashioned schedule, you know, when you're constructing a show for a traditional linear schedule, as a very kind of straightforward thing, you're kind of building to the end of the show. The end of the show, for a schedulist point of view, is 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 more important than the beginning of the show because you're hoping audiences will will build and build, and then you can end with a massive audience that you can then pass on to the next show to inherit. So, you know, back in the day, shows like you know all the ground force and changing rooms and the quiz shows you know, were, were allowed you to kind of grab an audience, build an audience and pass the audience on to the next show. It may well be that that's completely reversed now in an on-demand world, you know, and, and the various algorithms that all, the, all of the um, streams have will tell you kind of you know, in most minute detail how many people switched off after five seconds, 10 seconds, you know, five minutes. So, so, so that might change. You know, other things might change. One of the roles of the schedule was to actually bring audiences to the content. It's now called content surfacing how do you surface content is a is a buzzword at the moment and if if you're in the on demand world then um you know there's other ways of surfacing content one of which is the title i'm guessing that you need to have you know more of a 
Rabia title. Something we found at Sky was that people were coming to shows on the basis of the quality of the imagery uh, you had for the show, you know, the pictures and, and, the, and, and the, the, the press shots you took for the show, because certain shots worked really well on screen on the homepage, other shots didn't. And so we were kind of talking to program makers about the, um, uh, you know, the imagery you generate from a show. Um, That's interesting. Social media, yeah. kind of how do you how do you build awareness of the show through social social media? All of these things are now um, doing what the old fashioned scheduler used to do by putting it on a Monday at nine o'clock. Yeah, well, it's interesting when you look at Netflix and you look at the uh, the carousel on Netflix, and you, uh, you notice that a lot of very well known artwork for movies or TV shows have actually been changed and seems to refresh every now and again to you know key different scenes from from the show, which is always refreshing. And and obviously there's there's a whole load of analytics around that that's going to rather than you just looking at regular Breaking Bad cover, for example, or, or or key artwork for Breaking Bad, you might sort of see two or three different images from the from the season that that sits as artwork and is refreshed over time presumably we're going to be looking at linear networks taking cues from those sort of digital competitors that are proving that actually there are different triggers to lead audiences to to the content definitely and and i'm seeing that quite powerfully at the moment with line of duty you know that they, they so know what image to release for what episode don't they they kind of just know kind of how to play with the audience and the audience knows how to play with the show and so the relationship that 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 program has with its audience is really brilliant at the moment and and playful and interactive and they know if they'll end with a cliffhanger they just know what picture to play uh, to play on the carousel to play on the homepage the next week to kind of just play with the audience to tease with the audience is she dead is she alive What's that? What's that picture on the file that Ted Hastings just opened? Rather than that being kind of just another job you have to do, you know, have to take really good images for every episode now, you know, that can be a really kind of creatively inspiring way to kind of create a relationship with your audience. Adam, you worked as a producer for years before uh, becoming a, a commissioner. As a commissioner, did you ever want to grab the wheel from the producer, grab the steering wheel, or, or were, were you the type of commissioner that could sit back, trust, give the odd note or two, and relax a little bit more? Or were you at the other end of the spectrum? Or did it differ on different shows with different producers? You know, I loved that collegiate way of working. And also, you know, I wasn't a producer for a long, you know, for a long time. I was a producer, and I was a uh, you know, a program developer before I became a commissioner, but, but only for a, a short while. And so as a commissioner, you know, most of the producers and program makers I was working with were far more experienced than I was. You know, used to love to bring, you know, what I could bring to the table, which was kind of just my knowledge of the audiences I'm going after, my knowledge of how programs have worked in the past, uh, and kind of just adding that to the pot. You know, there are lots of different commissioners with lots of different styles, and there's lots of different program makers but i did love that that alchemy that that happened um i mean I, again i'm sitting here and thinking of um come dine with me and how you know how that was brought you know, at, at its heart when that was pitched to me that was pretty much all there you know it was a competitive dinner party show that's meant to be funny you know that was the idea it was meant to be a, a social commentary on on class and aspiration all of that was was in the show and then it was a case of just kind of you know, just helping to pull that out and to kind of, 
you know, find ways of, of helping the audience understand what that show was. And critical to that was, you know, was the voiceover, you know, was Dave Lamb. Um, you know, that was, you know, was, was that my idea? I, you know, I can't remember really. But, you know, the interesting thing is it was a daytime show. So we had no money. It was made off daytime budgets, but it's a totally kind of, you know, documentary style. So there were, there were very few format points that could help you in, in an edit where you've only got three days. And so it was incredibly hard to kind of craft. Um, you just didn't have the time to craft the edit to, to tell the joke, to kind of to kind of produce those beats that you can get in a well-crafted edit to signify to the audience that there's a joke coming up or they should look at one person who's about to do something funny. You just didn't have the time. And so we came up with the idea of, of having, um, uh, you know, the narrator do that job for us, you know, to save us money. So we said we needed somebody who could literally, their job was to say, look at that person over there by the cooker. They're about to do something very funny. And then you see them do it funny. And then they say, see, he did something or she did something funny. You're allowed to laugh at it. That was the role of that voiceover. Came out of kind of just a commissioner with an awareness of an audience and a program maker with a passion for program making and that kind of strange alchemy that happens. As you say, you know, potentially the lack of budget, then generating this sort of creativity as well, working together to find a solution. Definitely. I mean, we had another point where where we're thinking, God, how can we fill 25 minutes with with just one day shoot? <laughs> you know, because that's all we had. What if nothing happens? And so we said, well, why don't we, you know, when they're on the way to the to the meal, why don't we just ask them what they think the house is going to be like? And so they can describe the house or get them to describe the menu. And then you can cut to the house or cut to the menu. And if it's as they describe it, that's quite funny. And if it's different from how they describe it, that's really funny. And that gives you five minutes. So, so that helps as well. But going back to your earlier question, I, I think that no, I never did because because I kind of trusted them with the wheel more than me. I, I was the I was the sat nav. <laughs> and now it's time in the show, Adam, for you to pick your story of the week, the TV industry news item that's caught your eye in the past seven days. What's your story of the week? Well, it was a story that was in uh, broadcast last Friday, and it was the report by the Creative Industries Policy and Evidence Centre, which the top line story is that they identified program making as amongst the economy's most elite occupations. Uh, they found out that if you look at the senior creative roles in our industry, writers, producers, directors, that 61% of those came from what they described as privileged backgrounds compared to 38% in the UK. So again, it's another survey which tells us kind of what we've known for a long time, that we've got a big problem with class um, in our industry and we need to sort it out. And do you think the changes and the move to the regions that have been announced from Channel 4 and the BBC, do you think that's going to help solve that? I, th I think it will help. It's, it's going to be a slow process. Yeah, and, and there needs to be faster movement there. I think what we've done with or what we've learned from you know, the issues of race and ethnicity over the last year uh, is a real awareness that actually we've tried to do something about that issue for years and years and years and, and, and spectacularly underachieved. And we, we just need to make it happen and we need to make it happen fast. And I think that's that's definitely the case with them um, with class now. I think the move to regional commissioning will work. I'm guessing you didn't come from London. No. You know, so if you wanted to make a career in television, you needed to have the wherewithal to move down to London back in our day, because that's where it was happening. That's even if you kind of thought 
that you even had a, a role within television because you didn't see people like yourselves on screen and you didn't know anybody on screen. You know, I'm not saying I'm the classic example of, of the working class lad made good because I'm not. But I was the first in my generation, the first in my family, the first generation in my family that went to, to university. You know, I grew up in, in Romford. I moved to a small town in the Midlands, didn't know anybody who worked in telly. The notion of actually getting a job and making a career in telly was just ludicrous. And so, I, you know, I can, to a certain extent, understand and appreciate the challenge it is. The way it's, you know, the, the way it's occurred in the past, you know, is that you, know, you needed to be able to afford to move to London. You needed to be able to afford to not earn any money for a year while you're doing the unpaid running. It really helped if you knew somebody in the industry uh, to give you a, a job. Particularly, it helped if you were related to somebody in the industry to give you a job. All of those things just keep certain people in and certain people out. And certainly moving to regional production will help in one of those things. You don't have to move to London anymore. But there's still far more issues that we need to kind of face and overcome. It is a massive shift. And, and I think we'll, we'll start to hopefully see the, the benefit of that over the, the next few years. But, uh, you know, the thing for me is that there's so much talent yeah. that must have chosen not to work in TV over the past 20 years or so because it wasn't an option. It wasn't an option to move down to London. As London has become the most, one of the most expensive cities in the world, hopefully this move will have a real opportunity to open the doors. Not only, I mean, diversity is a whole different thing when it comes to ethnic diversity, but certainly when it comes to people from the nations and regions bringing all that talent into TV and content over the next few years. I think that's going to make a massive difference to the industry. You know, it's not a kind of a, a benign thing that we need to do because it's the right thing to do. It's kind of, you know, increasingly, it's kind of commercially imperative for organisations to do that because they're losing audiences. The crazy thing is we have a group of people making shows that are completely different from the group of people who are viewing those shows. And I think, you know, the growth of uh, YouTube and the, and the growth of social media and, and TikTok and all of that, Again, that's showing the traditional broadcasters that they've just missed out on so such brilliant talent. And that talent is saying, well, we don't need you anymore. We can go here. We can go there. Uh, and so, you know, it's essential for our future as an industry that we absolutely tap into it because, A, you're not getting the best talent. And B, you're not getting the best voices who can communicate with the people who are paying for your services. And now it's time in the show where my guest gets to nominate their hero of the week and who or what they're telling to get in the bin. Adam, who's your hero of the week? Well, I mean, my hero of the week and my villains of the week come from uh, come from the same story. Uh, and it's a story I think you touched on last week and, and, and we've been talking about it for, for a good week now, but it, it still kind of can bear repetition and more discussion. So it's the, the European Super League and the villains are the owners and the heroes are the fans that stopped it in its tracks. It's just been so extraordinary to, to, to watch the kind of the disaster that's unfolded. And I think, you know, from a, from a television point of view, there's real learnings there and real kind of alarm bells for us. And, you know, I think you know, a lot's been said about it. And, you know, we all know why it was wrong. But I think kind of if you go back a couple of weeks before it happened and before it happened in the way it did happen, you know, you could make a case for it for saying, well, I can kind of see there's a there's a value in this. I can kind of see <clears throat> why people thought it would be a good idea, you know, to kind of guarantee the best teams in Britain to play the best teams from around Europe 
on a regular basis more often than happens at the moment. That's got to be a good thing. But of course, it's not the best teams, is it? It's the richest teams. Yeah. But the thing at the heart of it that I found fascinating is this sense of fairness. Uh, and, and the biggest issue for me was uh, the issue that you just can't be relegated. You can't lose. Uh, and I think Pep Guardiola kind of summed that up properly, didn't he? He said, if you can't lose, it's not a sport. Um, and I think that the fans and the players and the managers kind of, but specifically the fans, kind of just said, you know, that's not fair. And I think you see that in so many things. You certainly see that actually seems strange to say, but, you know, in the genre we started this conversation talking about in quiz shows, you know, when you when you start making quiz shows, you learn from a very early age that, that fairness is all. You don't mess with fairness. You know, if you get a question slightly wrong or your questions are slightly skewed to a certain type of person or that the the requirement you ask from the participants is not commensurate with the amount of money you they can win, you really hear loud and clear that, that the audience saying, that's not fair. And I think the sense of fairness is so deeply ingrained, I think in the human species, actually, but, but definitely it's ingrained in, in the British psyche. Uh, and I think you see people forgetting this issue regularly. You see it in politicians, you see it in sports, you see it in the government where if you think of, you know, regardless of what, you know, what politics you have or what, what, what government you support, you can see it in going back to, you know, the Gurkhas were denied British citizenship. Yeah. Uh, you saw it last year where the foreign NHS workers were, were not allowed to have free access to the NHS. Windrush as well. That's another one, isn't it? Windrush. Exactly. Exactly. You absolutely saw it in Windrush where the general British population, she went, hang on a minute. That's not fair. That's just not fair. We're not having this. And that leads to kind of very, very quick U-turns because the government go, oh, God, yeah, we got that wrong. We didn't anticipate that. And, and the quickest U-turn of all was by the, uh, you know, the, the owners of those clubs. And even the clubs, you know, I speak as a, as a Man U supporter, even those clubs with, you know, that, that stood to benefit from this were saying, no, that doesn't work. You know, the only value of winning is that you could potentially lose and it's just unfair and it's no fun. You know, you can't cheer loudly if there's not the possibility of going home crying. It's about earning yeah. your place and uh, and earning success. And uh, and in this case, a lot of these club owners, you know, they were putting that cartel approach over fairness, and they were putting money over fairness. And I think that was what really triggered this revulsion from right across, not only sport, but actually, you know, we had uh, we we had leaders of various countries come out and say, this is, you know, this is just not, uh, you know, not right. So as you say, very, very pleased that they, they uh, told it to get in the bin. Yeah, no, exactly. And, um, you know, it's not as if it's a perfect system we live in at the moment. You know, it's pretty unfair that some clubs, you know, have got more money than other clubs and, and, you know, it's, there's an elite system in place at the moment, but this is just, you know, somehow we can kind of make that all work because every now and again, you see a Leicester or, you know, or, or kind of, you know, a West Ham challenging for the Champions League uh, uh, and the Ajaxes. And so that's, you know, no matter who you support, that's a glorious thing to see. Um, yeah. But it was just this time where we're actually, you know, forgetting all of that. We've let you get away with a lot of this stuff that's slightly twisted football at the moment. On this issue, you got it wrong. Hmm. You've got to be able to lose and you've got to be able to win and people have got to get there on merits. Uh, it was a beautiful thing. 
It's very interesting that no broadcaster was really strongly linked. There was a few. There were there's a few discussions, and there was obviously Amazon came out, didn't they, and distanced themselves mm-hmm. from it, as did Sky. But I, I wonder. I wonder whether that was a uh, SVOD play in the making. Whether that was a direct to consumer play for many of these clubs. Who knows? I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll maybe yeah. find out uh, in due course. Adam. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. There's lots more I could ask you about many of the shows that you commissioned and many of the uh, uh, many of the decisions that you've made as a as a scheduler and as a commissioner as well. But for now, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on Telecast. It's a pleasure, and thanks for inviting me. And now it's time for another commissioner's corner. And this week, I'm delighted to welcome Philippa Colley Cousins, commissioning editor for Drama. At UK TV. Hi, how are you doing, Philippa? Hi, Justin. Hi, everyone out there. I- I'm doing really well, actually. Can't get a pub booking, but apart from that, I'm fine. Oh, pub booking. I can only dream of a pub booking right now. I would love to go to the pub, but uh, but I'm I'm not very mobile at the moment. I've got a, a bad leg. So, as soon as I can hobble out and get to an outside pub table, I'd I'd love to. Thank you for coming on the show. We've had Pete and Helen on from UK TV beforehand. So I'm delighted to get a UK TV commissioning hat trick with your appearance on the show. When Pete was on, he talked mainly about commissioning around comedy. And I'm sure lots of our producer listeners out there would love to hear about drama and what you're up to in the drama space right now. So can you tell us which channels you commission original drama for? I'm the drama commissioner for UK TV. So in theory, that's every channel. But in practice, we're at, um, I think we're three years, nearly three years into our drama journey. And um, so far, we've concentrated on crime drama for Alibi. But there's no reason why that shouldn't be expanded. Three years, that's not a lot, really, in the, in, the, in the drama space, is it? I mean, I know many producers who are in development with various dramas that are, and, and have been pitching them for two, three years before they actually get them commissioned. So, so three years from a standing start is relatively new. Yeah, I, I really kind of hit the ground running. I could see that in the UK landscape, there was absolutely, you know, a, a a chance for another sort of boutique, bespoke, progressive strand of drama, something that perhaps was, you know, met the quality of BBC One and ITV One. Um, but also there's something in that thriller space between the streamers and that ITV and, and BBC offering that we could do that would be new and, and we could get the best talent on board and the most diverse progressive talent and, um, you know, kind of start a new boutique strand. Tell us how much original content you're commissioning a year right now. This year so far is kind of around about 33 hours. I've got four things in production at the moment so that they've either finished shooting, just started shooting or just about to shoot. And then I've got two series coming up later in the year. And, and, you know, we're still recovering from COVID, doing our maths and and who knows, there could be more. What drama shows are working particularly well on specific channels and why do you think that is across UK TV? The drama sector in the UK 
I think that at, at the last figure it was 2.6 billion. So drama is is definitely booming, and I think people love drama. Alibi is a bespoke crime drama channel, so it, you know it's a destination for people who absolutely love crime drama. Last year, Traces and We Hunt Together. Traces is our series with Molly Windsor, Martin Compton and Laura Fraser. And it's a twisty-turny forensic drama set in a a forensic lab in Sifa with a love story right at the centre of it. And that did incredibly well for us. So on UK TV, we did over a million on the first episode, which is, you know, a phenomenal amount. And it went out on BBC One. And the first episode was 6.4 million. And it will go out on Brickbox as well. Hasn't gone out on Brickbox yet, but I, I imagine that it will get an even bigger figure than many other dramas in the US because it, it, it's a drama that's got a real following. So that's returning. They are shooting at the moment and have got a brilliant new story. And then we hunt together, which also we delivered in a pandemic last year, and that's a detective drama with Babu Sese and Eve Miles in the lead and Hermione Caulfield as a, perhaps, because they haven't caught her yet, psychopathic killer or not. So they're also back with a new series and that, that also did incredibly well on Alibi. Um, we haven't tried that in free yet, but we're talking about it and we might do. But it has gone out on Showtime in the US and it did really well for Showtime. It was a, a, a really strong title for them and um, attracted a really diverse audience for them with Babu Sese in the lead. Um, so so we're doing a second series with them. Going back to Traces for a second, the, the Martin Compton effect, are you feeling that line of duty bounce, if you like, for, for the series, do you think? Yeah, Martin is an extraordinary actor and, you, you know, I think he has gathered such a, a fantastic following from Line of Duty. But of course, he doesn't use his own accent. Um, he he actually has to speak Estuary Essex, whereas in fact, he is from just outside Glasgow. So I think in Traces, he can use his actual accent, <laughs> which he's very ah. pleased to do. And it's a slightly different part because there's a love story right in the centre of series one, and it continues into series two. Although he's played crime drama, he hasn't played crime drama romance. And I think, you know, for Martin, that was something that was really attractive. And also to work with Molly Windsor, because they really spark off each other. They have an acting style that complements each other. They're both quite mercurial. And as soon as the director says action you know you never quite know what they will do so watching the rushes uh, as i do every morning on every show is really exciting can you tell us a little bit about those shows that you're currently producing or about to go into production with right now the first show that went into production in december is annika which is a new story of the week show it's adapted from a radio for successful radio title by Nick Walker, who's the writer, and Nicola Walker, who plays Annika um, in the radio show, um, agreed to do the television adaptation. And the television ad- adaptation, I've changed it quite a lot 
she breaks the fourth wall, so she talks to us, the audience, which I had never seen in a crime drama before, but felt if we were going to bring this maverick character to life, it needed that playfulness. So it's a gang show. She heads the Marine Homicide Unit. She's got um, a willful and difficult teenage daughter. So there's a brilliant mother and daughter relationship at the centre of it. And talking to Nicola Walker the other day, they, they only wrapped the other day an incredibly hard shoot, not only COVID, but freezing, freezing cold, filming on the water in locks and rivers in the depths and breadths of Scotland. Um, she said that actually Annika was the most attractive character she had ever played and she absolutely loved the show. So I'm really looking forward to that coming out in August. What else are you in production with? We just started shooting on Ragdoll. Ragdoll is... Uh, the follow-up to The Killing Eve producer, Sally Woodward Gentle's new show, and it's written by Freddie Sideborn. We've also partnered with AMC in the States on this, who make Breaking Bad and The Walking Dead. And this is a really kind of high-end, twisty-turny thriller. The ragdoll, which you, you, you sort of see the ragdoll at the beginning of... Um, the drama, uh, the detectives are called out to the ragdoll and it's actually a body strung up, which when you look closely is made of six different human body parts. Whoa. So <laughs> there is a race against time to find out who these people are. And at the same time, the killer re- releases a kill list and one of our detectives is on that kill list. So it's a very tense, hard-boiled, but also funny. Freddie Seiborn comes from comedy and he's written some fantastic dialogue between the team. We look forward to to seeing all of those when they come on screen. You you mentioned, obviously, those are all crime dramas that that you're commissioning for Alibi. The UK TV drama, is that only reruns of previous series or is there any original content on drama? No. At the moment, the Drama Channel is not commissioning original content. But, you know, we live in a rapidly changing world and we are really proactive. We're building drama into a brand, into a critical mass, and we'll have a look at everything that makes sense. So essentially, we shouldn't think that UK TV drama commissioning is purely around procedural crime. What are you looking for? for producers to bring to UK TV in the drama space? Well, I think very much at the moment we are looking for crime detective and crime thriller and producers should think about um, the sort of ideas that they take to, to BBC One and ITV One. So they're really kind of good quality detective or crime drama. So, you know, if you think about... Luther or Line of Duty, um, that sort of show, or a thriller, you know, if you think about Dr. Foster or Too Close or Cheat. But really, I'm also interested in things that kind of change our perception of what drama is and what drama can do. I think we've, we've obviously all been through 
the same experience. I can't really think of many times in history where we've been through the same experience. And I think the pandemic has made us, you know, better drama critics because we've watched more of it, probably made us a little bit more reflective, a bit, little bit kinder to each other um, and a little bit more kind of interested in ideas that um, can make our lives better. So I'm looking for people who've got something to say. They've got a voice um, and they they can take something like a genre, which is drama, and, you know, you could, a crime story in a sense, you know, is a pillar. But within that, you can tell lots of different stories. But if you think about Breaking Bad, for example, within Breaking Bad, you know, you've got somebody who's who's never put a foot wrong, but in order to provide for his family, he decides, you know, to be the chemistry teacher turned drug peddler. That's a really interesting story because you can look at the way society is organised and his worry about money and leaving a legacy and where the the white male middle of the road man is and what he's feeling about himself. So I don't think we should see crime drama as a tool, as a straitjacket. I think we should see it as an interesting framing device to tell our stories. And you mentioned earlier on in one of your other series the character turning to camera and speaking to camera. So there's actually, it shouldn't just be anything too formulaic. You're looking for ideas that could potentially, you know, break the mould of your genre a little bit. Absolutely. I mean, I think Drama costs, you know, a fair amount of cash to make. And I think, therefore, you know, one needs to be responsible about it. It needs to entertain, but it also needs to communicate something that we're all trying to explore and we're all trying to learn from. And it doesn't necessarily have the answers. I think shows that that seem to have the answers tend not to engage an audience, you know. We make shows for an audience, really, to delight and entertain and make them think. So obviously, pandemic over the last year, um, there's been, uh, you know, the breaks were put on so many, so many different uh, drama productions. Uh, Only a few seemingly seemed to to really make it through and uh, were able to keep on producing through COVID. And now... There seems to be, I'm certainly hearing, there's a, there's a real rush on studio space and crew fees as well. And it's really sort of driving that demand up. How, first of all, how are you coping with studio space? Are you finding that? Are you finding that studio space is very hard to come by right now? On our dramas, we've got We Hunt Together, Traces, um, Annika and Ragdoll shooting at the moment. There are challenges but we haven't found finding places to shoot a challenge. Annika did a bit because if you leafleted people to shoot in a street, normally you'd get 30 replies and they were getting two. Practically, um, it can feel a bit more like seat of your pants, but we haven't had that problem on any of our shows. How about crew fees as well? Other reports I'm, I'm getting are that crew fees are rocketing due to US streamers like Netflix just really sort of 
overinflating the market and basically paying anything to get the right crew in place to get their productions moving. Are you finding that, you know, there's a huge inflation in in crew fees? I'm not sure about that, but I do think that um, there is a lot more drama shooting at the moment. Therefore, there is a lot more competition for crew. And that probably comes down to money negotiation or having a good script that people really want to work on. I, I don't think we're an industry that just run on money. I think we're definitely not. I think all our crews have really, really good taste and they also know the sort of productions that they want to work on. We're really keen to keep people safe. Um, so, you know, we're making sure that the budget is is strong for that. It's exciting that there's more shooting. There's more opportunity for people to come through. People will take what they call risks on talented younger people. And, you know, that's absolutely joyous that that is happening. That's, you know, kind of people are getting the next step um, now rather than waiting to, uh, another five or ten years. I, I think it is great for talent that more talent will emerge in this period. It presents its own opportunities, I suppose, doesn't it? I think so, yes. I think, I think you know, it, it, markets are always different and um, drama always exists in different markets. Markets end and new one begins. This is a very competitive, large market. You know, you have to have a good script and cast well to attract our discerning crew because we've got wonderful crew in this country and um, it really does make a difference to how a show turns out, whether you get the right HODs or not. We all know that freelancers were the group that were most hit through the pandemic as well. So hopefully now we'll see this uh, real boom in production will make up for a little bit of that quiet period that, uh, that a lot of freelancers went through. Coming back to commissioning, how about co-productions? Now, they must be key for you. I mean, we, you, you're talking about a few original productions, but co-productions are also something that you're actively involved in. Is that right? No, in the drama space, although we do eventually work with partners, it's always after we've developed what we want to make. So it's very much bespoke commissioning. This is a bespoke strand. You know, if people are just looking for completion money, this is not the strand to look at because that's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to make a coherent body of creative work that stands out in the crime drama space first and then in the drama space. As a broadcaster, we are the authors of that, if, if you understand my meaning. When it comes to what you're not looking for, that's a regular question that I ask all commissioners, and it sometimes can be more insightful than what you are looking for. What are the top three or four ideas that you can communicate to producers to say, don't bring me this? I can't really, Justin, to be honest, because I think that you find the gems in the most unlikely places, really. I think that on the drama strand, we're pretty good at looking at everything that is sent to us. But what I would say to producers is do look at the channel, you know, don't, sometimes I feel that people have never watched Alibi and so they're not really talking from a point of authority of watching Alibi and also 
having seen the originals that we've made and read the press releases on the ones that we're making and and, and thinking, you know, okay, what is the point of difference to what they're doing already and why do I think that this would play well on the channel? And the thing is, Alibi is a pay channel and it's bespoke crime drama. So, So it is really immersing yourself in it and then being really convinced that an idea that you want to make would fit in to that sort of drama boutique raft of of um series that that you've either seen or you've you've heard about that's surprising isn't it that that producers wouldn't actually do their homework and i've heard that quite a few commissioners that have been on the show before it we're talking about you know watch the channel understand what we do before you pitch because that's absolutely the first step presumably that saves everybody's time if they do that i guess it's really hard if you're trying to move your business forward and you may not have that much time but i think it probably behoves you to make time because it's difficult for you to be successful if you don't and you haven't thought about where the gaps might be you know and think what sort of talent you can bring I mean I'm sort of interested in a mixture of established and new talent and you know those are interesting conversations and also directing talent you know I don't think people talk about directing talent as much as they should Directors can really change the look of something. A director and a designer working together can make a completely different, exciting show, or they can make something that's quite conventional. And I think we have brilliant directors and brilliant sound crews in this, this country, and we need to you know, make sure that we're giving them platforms to show off. When producers come to you with ideas, do you always need the talent to be attached to begin with? You know, if they're bringing you a script, do they need the talent? Do they do they need attachments? Or is it a case of you're happy just to see a script and with some suggestions, some strong suggestions from the producers about talent? Or is that is that something that you want to be actively involved in the casting? What really helps is if people are fluent in the HODs that they'd like to use and the cast they'd like to use. So in a pitch, it's not that you want anyone to be attached. It's just you want to be able to have a a high-level creative conversation with somebody about what this project could be. So if you're giving me a one-page or a treatment or a first episode, if you know a bit about producing and, and to make drama at this level, you know, you can't be a complete novice. You need to have those exciting blue sky conversations. And I think I find often when people are telling me, oh, and -and so-and-so will be in it, most of the time that that is possibly not necessarily true. A, because, you know, that person is is attached to everything and I'll have 10 10 things that they're attached to. Um, But, you know, but they might be a useful person to discuss and... Once we've developed it and then, you know, you've gone with other projects into a green light meeting and and that you're the project that's come out, you know, it's at that point you seriously talk about talent. Talent moves around all the time. It goes up, it goes down, new talent comes in. The kiss of death really would be to decide 
a year, year and a half before you're going to make something, who's going to be in it? And talking about the perfect pitch, presuming you've got a relatively experienced production business coming to you with a pitch, what would you expect to see from them in terms of the type of pitch? Is it purely just a script or is it presentation? Is it is it any footage? What, what is it that you would want to see from a reputable, or it could be a newly reputable or a, a, a buzzy young production company that's uh, that's got some history and drama? What's the perfect pitch in terms of how they get you to commission their story? It really can be a one-page, a treatment, or a an episode one, and um, you know it's kind of engaging in in a professional sense about what this drama is and why they're excited about it, and meeting the writer. If I'm interested in something that um, an idea that a producer gives me or a script a producer gives me, the next thing I want to do is meet the writer because the next series I want is in a writer's head. It doesn't exist on paper. You can't buy it. You can't order it up. It's absolutely in their head. And um, developing drama takes time. And within about six to to eight months you might have three scripts but you won't have any more than that so the person you're going to put the most faith in is the writer and the producer's working relationship so you know that that accrues over developing a project that looks interesting together and finally in terms of contact details i think you know we we've we've talked about channel briefs for uk tv's channels are uh housed on a website, uh, which is the UK TV corporate website. That's presumably the best way for a producer who you haven't got a relationship with to get in contact with you. Yes, yes. You can have a look at uh, uh, the briefing on the Alibi page or you can send submissions to submissions at uktv.co.uk. Okay. Fantastic. Philippa, thank you very much for your time today. Best of luck with all those productions that you're you're working on at the moment. And hopefully there'll be some producers who have uh, been listening to the show are going to be in touch with your next line of duty or the next big procedural drama, because obviously there's a massive thirst for, for that sort of content right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of taking all those things as a badge of excellence, but bringing something that's got that DNA, but is substantially different. And um, absolutely, the producing community is absolutely our lifeblood. And, um, you know, we work with some wonderful people and can't wait to work with some more. Philippa Colley-Cousins, thank you so much for joining me and best of luck. Thanks, Justin. And now it's time to catch up with Richard Middleton, editor of TBI, for the latest look at the key executive moves shaping the international TV industry in Movers and Shakers. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks, Justin. Yeah, very well. We're uh, yeah busy, busy, but all good. Always great to have you on chatting about all of these executive moves. Before we do that, how are things at TBI then? You sound, sound like you're busy. Uh, yeah, yes. Yeah, lovely to be here as well, Justin. Um, yeah, we are busy. We're preparing lots of stuff for, for over the summer and later this year. So we've got lots more TBI talks 
coming up. So, uh, yeah, all of your listeners can keep an eye out on the site for, for what's going to come next uh, on that front. And then we've got our Content Innovation Awards. So these happen towards the end of the year, um, but we'll be opening up entries for that in May. So, yeah, make sure everyone keeps their eyes peeled on the TBI website. All of that in the works for, for the months coming up. It's been a busy time in the TV industry. Lots of news it seems to be, you know, speeding up the news agenda somewhat. None more so in the area of executive moves. So, uh, what are the biggest stories that you've uh, highlighted recently? I think, yeah, we've seen lots of exec changes. I mean, we've spoken uh, before about, you know, the sort of fundamental shifts in the industry, the streamers, the US studios changing the way they're operating, and, and that's having a huge effect on sort of the exec numbers, uh, people coming and going. But we're also seeing lots of stuff on the production front uh, this this time of year. Just recently, we've had Magnus Temple stepping down from the garden. So the garden's the ITV Studios-owned uh, production company, does all sorts of shows, 24 hours in A&E. And Magnus is a co-founder there. He's uh, been with the company, for, well, he's headed up uh, the company for 11 years. Um, he's decided to step down to spend more time with his family, basically. Um, mm. He's going to be replaced by Nicola Hill and John Hay. Uh, those two are becoming joint CEOs. And there's quite a lot of continuity there. Nicola and John were brought in um, by uh, by Magnus uh, following the exit of co-founder Nick Curran in 2017. Changes on that front, they've also promoted their director of programmes, Nicola Brown, uh, to become creative director. So, yeah, plenty going on at the Garden um, and they've got loads of shows in the, in the works as well. Two series with Simon Reeve, BBC Two, uh, a new Kansas-based version of Police Custody for Discovery and Channel 4. So uh, plenty happening on that front. And Magnus... His, his quote uh, in the press release was really talking about he was taking a rather extended period of of time off, which, uh, which sounds quite nice, doesn't it? It doesn't sound bad, does it? Yeah, I think, yeah, so once you've done the 11 years uh, in charge of a company like that, I guess you probably deserve a bit of time off. But, yeah, no doubt we'll be joining uh, yeah, some of the other execs on the golf course or uh, in the garden. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it sounds like he's got a strong succession plan worked out there. What about Warner Media? Yeah, we're seeing Warner Media, uh, as per many of the US studios, uh, rolling out their streamers internationally. So Warner Media is looking to launch HBO Max uh, across Europe and, and elsewhere, Latin America as well, uh, later this year. So as part of that that sort of that strategy, Warner Media's hired the head of Talpa Networks, Dutch Channel Net Five, Annelies Sitfas. She's going to head up uh, unscripted production uh, for Warner Media EMEA, basically overseeing all the the unscripted programming uh, for HBO Max in the region. Really interesting move. Uh, HBO has done a lot uh, under Anthony Roots, obviously on the on the drama front with HBO Europe. Um, so we've seen lots of scripted stuff, but the unscripted stuff we haven't really seen a huge amount of yet. So Annalise is going to be leading, uh, leading on that front. So yeah, lots of uh, potential, I think, probably for production companies all across the region. The US streamer uh, has already ordered you know comedy formats like Tattletales, a baking show from B17 Entertainment. They're now looking to do similar uh, similar things over in in, in Europe and the Middle East and Africa. And Annalise is going to be yeah heading up a lot of the unscripted uh, front on that. Well, good luck to her. And we're also starting to see some of these big American streamers starting to trade staff as well staff moving in between these big big s fods what are you seeing on on that front 
Yeah, I mean, this is another an interesting Warner, another Warner Media story. Um, they're merging the development teams for for HBO Max and, and US cable network adults from the the animated the animation and comedy teams. They're going to combine those two development teams into one unit. So again, we're seeing. I mean, it's just it's that it's you know kind of efficiencies on on the streaming front and the and the network side of it. We're seeing Susanna Macos. She's she had been heading up comedy and animation for HBO Max. Now she's going to head up the original comedy and animation for for Max and Adult Swim. Again, I mean, it points to the fact that you know these streamers really are front and centre for the uh, for the big studios. And it also, I mean, this is a really interesting one, just in terms of, sort of the importance of adult animation. We've seen over the last year, adult animation's really soared in in popularity. Uh, on the commissioning front, you know, we've seen Disney launching a dedicated unit recently. And I think, yeah, Susanna obviously has a big remit here uh, across both HBO Max and, and Adult Swim as well. Adult Swim's, yeah, I'm sure all your listeners will know it's, it's got a huge history in, uh, in adult animation. They're looking to build on that uh, with this appointment. Yeah, and we, we actually saw a big acquisition. I think it was before Christmas, wasn't it? I think it was Sony acquiring Crunchyroll as well. Yeah, so I think, yeah, that one, I mean, again, that's yeah an underlining sort of uh, story of, of, of the the interest and the popularity of, of animation. I mean, that anime obviously is hugely popular uh, in Asia and that that popularity is certainly going global. Um, and when you've got companies like Crunchyroll and, and you know, Sony uh, pushing it, I think Netflix is investing huge amounts in it as well. It's, yeah, it's a very popular genre at the moment. Well, I think we should be doing a show to look at that area in a little while so uh so keep keep tuned for for that speaking of netflix you've identified another netflix exit yeah this is it's just an interesting one i mean a few years ago it was netflix poaching all of the execs from the broadcast community um We've, uh, you know, fast forwarded a, a couple of years and now we're seeing Disney uh, poaching some of the streaming uh, execs. So this is Disney recruiting uh, Emma Smart, who was Netflix's London-based director of business affairs for original series. So she's going to be doing something similar over at the Mouse House, uh, reporting into Diego Londoño, basically working on yeah, UK-based originals. And she's got quite a big remit across Europe as well. So she'll be working on some of those deals as well. But yeah, just an interesting hire for, for Disney, obviously, you know, Disney Plus has gone gangbusters recently. We've seen it really do well on the, on the subscriber front, uh, aided and abetted by the fact that everyone's at home and lots of kids need entertaining. Um, but interesting, yeah, you know, perhaps a little bit of a shift in power of um, Disney being able to, you know, poach some of these Netflix execs. They've already taken people like Liam Keelan from BBC Studios. He's now uh, VP of Original Production at, at uh, Disney. Um, so, yeah, we can expect to see some more execs being traded over the uh, coming months, I suspect. And the last story you've highlighted this week is over in Italy. Yeah, this is an interesting one. Um, yeah, we saw that a lot of uh, shenanigans going on with the Super League and the battle for power over uh, football uh, on a global sort of basis. Well, this is sort of related. We saw Sky Italia's MD, Maximo Abara, uh, and programming chief, Nicola Macanico. Um, leave, they've left the Comcast-owned um, operator. Essentially, Sky Italia 
failed to win rights to Serie A football. Um, they lost those uh, rights to DAZN, the, the fast-growing streaming service. That failure seems to have been behind their exits. Ibarra has gone to uh, join an Italian tech firm and Macanico is uh, going to run a, a government-owned film operation, the Instituto Luce Cinecita. So, yeah, just an interesting sort of, you know, the, the importance of sports to some of these broadcasters. And also, I should pr- probably mention as well, you know, Sky is looking to cut staff numbers in Italy I think it's by up to a quarter, according to most reports, looking to save sort of 350 million. So, yeah, interesting uh, departures. Uh, and again, you know, it plays into a, a very global uh, sort of storyline. And no sign of their replacements yet? Not at the moment, no. At the moment, it's a chap called Stephen Van Roon, who is uh, Sky's EVP and CEO uh, in the UK and Europe. He's got interim charge. But Sky Italia, yeah, I mean, the you know, they work very closely with their sort of sibling firms in Germany and, and the UK, of course. So we expect to see someone installed there very soon. Richard, thank you so much for joining us again, as ever, on Movers and Shakers. We look forward to hearing from you again very soon with the latest TV industry executive moves. Pleasure. Lovely to join you, Justin. Take care. Cheers. Well, we've reached the end of another week's show. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show and share it with friends and colleagues on social media. A quick reminder to sign up for our free newsletter called Telecast Plus. It's packed with interesting TV industry stories of the week you may have missed, exclusive insight and opinion, including The Secret Producer, our intrepid anonymous exec reporting from the front line of TV production. It's all completely free. Just visit our website to sign up at telecast-podcast.com. You can also follow a link in the episode description. You can also follow us on Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Telecast was edited by Ian Chambers and recorded in London. So until next Thursday, as always, stay safe.